we'd like to welcome Charlotte Curran from CFC to the stage. Hi Paul, nice to meet you. My new best mate. My new best mate. 20 years ago, no. I'm really looking forward to this. Let me pray. God, you are here. Holy Spirit, you are here. Jesus, you are glorified in this place. And I thank you for the gifts you have given to Charlotte and the oil you've poured over her, the knowledge you've given her, the wisdom you've given her. And God, I pray even more than that. I pray for now, more anointing, more power, more prophetic insight, and more of your beautiful living and active word to pour out on this group today. We need you, Lord Jesus. We pray this in your holy and awesome name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Paul. Am I allowed to move furniture around here? Is it okay if I move this? Class. I feel at home because I've got Phil's mic. I'm now hoping for his anointing. That comes next. Not the crowd surfing bit. That I'll pass on. That I will pass on. I want to start by apologizing for the fact that I have no slides. There is no excuse for this, except for the fact that I was literally came out of the womb as an 82-year-old woman and have <laughs> an adverse reaction to all technology. No, like, I'm not joking. People who know me are like, amen. Like, she is like a granny of all proportions. I was thinking about this this week, and I was thinking about when I was a kid. What I wanted more than anything in the world, right, was a fun fax. Now, if you're a kid of the 80s, does anybody remember the fun? Give me a wave if you remember. Oh, now you're all my mates too. I, for those of you who missed the glory of the fun facts, right? The fun facts was basically a file of facts for kids. Unbelievable scenes. I wanted one so bad. Now, now, on hindsight, looking back, I'm like, what were you going to put in that file of facts, Charlotte? Like, scheduling your play dates. Like, I didn't need a file of facts, but I wanted a file of facts so bad. I also wanted a briefcase. Not entirely sure why. Wanted a briefcase. I was just, like, born old. And actually, when I was thinking about this this week, I was thinking about the fact that most of my play as a child consisted of me wishing I was a grown-up and could actually go to work and get paid for said jobs. Like, I just always wanted to work. I remember June really clearly, because June's a big month when you're in primary school, okay? June's the best month of the whole school year. And you're getting to the end, 30th of June, and I would watch all my friends skip out in the summer sun, because remember it used to be sunny in Northern Ireland, <laughs> skip out in the summer sun, and they would take their wee school bags and they would toss the school bag in the corner and run out the door carefree. And I'd be looking at the school bag going, why are you tossing this treasure box <laughs> in the corner like this? Because you see, I had a criminal empire in school going, right? I had it all figured out. This is what I used to do. I realized that if you were very careful about the size of your handwriting in your English book and really careful about where you placed your sums in your arithmetic book, you could make your jotters run out two weeks before the end of term, right? <laughs> and if your jotters run out two weeks before the end of term, they have no choice but to give you new jotters because you have more work to do. Now, in reality, it's the last couple of weeks of term. You're going to fill two pages, absolute max, two pages. So I would make it so that my jotters ran out two weeks before the end of term. They would give me brand new jotters, which I would take home in my backpack. I was literally willing at life. All that space for more work. It was, like, fabulous. And my poor brother, who's here today, can attest to the fact that he attended summer school all summer long at Miss McGowan's classroom <laughs> as she filled in the jotters. If he's brilliant at all, it's because of my summer school, guys. 
That's why, it's because he attended summer school with me. I just wanted to grow up and work so badly. Like my favorite thing of all, though, in primary school, my favorite thing of all was the big prize. You could get this big prize in P7, okay? And this is the big prize now. Now, not, like, even better than, you remember when they used to wheel in the TV? Like, even better than that day. <laughs> For those of you under 20, you just missed a trick. They used to wheel in the TV, unbelievable scenes, loved it. Better than the wheelie TV, better than the gummy bear box that my teacher had that when you paid your school funds, you got a gummy bear. It was basically trade in the classroom. Better than that, it was, I, if I finished my work in P7 quick enough and accurately enough, I would be allowed to clean out the P7 store. I would, I would be allowed and I would be looking at all those losers still painting their artwork and I was like, I have my art done, I have my maths done, I have my English done and now I get to clean out the store, guys. I am winning at life. Looking back now, child labour probably. But at the time, it felt like a real gift and I realised that like somewhere inside of me, like work was just woven into the fabric of who I was and I still love work. I love a good task, I love a good list, I love productivity, I'm the kind of weirdo that if I haven't, I've done something and it hasn't been on my list, I'll go back and write it on my list just so I can take it off <laughs> to feel even more productive. And some of you are laughing, but you know you do the same. <laughs> can I get an amen? Yeah. Amen. Here's the thing about the people who said amen to that. You're gonna absolutely hate the passage I'm about to read. <laughs> you're, gonna, you're laughing now, you'll not be laughing in a minute. You're gonna hate it. Because everybody like me, who is wired for work, who loves a good task, who's like, I want my life to count. I'm not gonna just sit around all day. I wanna do something of value. Hates the passage, any guesses where we're going? Yes, Mary and Martha. Right, Luke 10. Now listen, I want you to take a big deep breath if you're a worker. This is gonna be fine. We're gonna get through this fine. Because actually, actually, I don't think, that, I don't think we've understood this passage properly. I think whenever we've taught it, and guilt and guilty as charged, whenever I've taught it, it's kind of turned into some weird dichotomy about worship and work. And, and work is okay, but actually the people who you know, find themselves in contemplative prayer you know, with their Lectio 365 app on all day, they're the, re Amen, Pete. they're the real Christians. They're the real Christians. You know, like work, work is okay, but if there's a choice between the two, you know, you've, got to take, you've got to take worship and work's not, not as important. I just don't think that's what this passage is about, but let's read it, big deep breath, let's read it. Luke 10 says this, there's no slides, remember, I'm 82. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him, and she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister's left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered. You're worried and you're upset about many things, but few things are needed or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better and it will not be taken away from her. But I don't think that this is about the difference between work and worship. I just don't think. Here's why I don't think, okay? Work with me here. Here's why I don't think. Because the Bible, because our Bibles come to us with all of those lovely headings that the translators have put in to help us out, we can be tempted to treat the Bible like a Hans Christian Andersen book of short stories, right? Where every story is just this independent wee story and none of them are really connected at all. And that's just not what's happening with scripture. 
The gospel writers, when they set out to write their gospel, have an idea in their head of the image, the perspective of Jesus that they want to deliver to those who don't know who Jesus is. So in this gospel in Luke, he is a guy called Theophilus, and he's trying to explain to Theophilus who Jesus is. And he's got an idea and an image in his head, and he's got a theme, and he's got certain things about Jesus he wants to, to be shown and to see. And so he's building his case all the way through his gospel, as all the gospel writers are, about who this Jesus is. So all of the stories are connected. So let's, let's work with that in this passage. If Mary and Martha is about how work is not all that important and worship is more important, Luke has done a terrible job to set it up. He's, done, he's literally done it. He should stop writing gospels. He's done a terrible job to set it up. Let me show you why. The chapter that Mary and Martha's in starts like this, Luke 10. It says this, after this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. He told them, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into the harvest field. The chapter literally starts saying, work's really important. There's a lot of work to be done. Like, we need more workers. Where's the workers? Would anybody get up and actually do something? We need some work. In fact, put it on your prayer list. I know you're praying for Auntie Eileen's knee surgery, but this needs to go above that. Let's pray for workers to come into the harvest. Work is important. Work is important. Work is important. All right? The next story is the story of a good Samaritan about a guy who's wrecked on the road, and he's met by this Samaritan who does not hold a four-day worship conference and sing in tongues for six hours over him. He does work. He gets really practical and he does some work. And then comes Mary and Martha. So if Luke is trying to say that work is not that important, he's done a terrible setup because the whole passage has been about the importance of work and good work done well. And so I want to propose to you today that actually the story of Mary and Martha is a continuation of the story and the case that Luke is building. And I think what Luke wants you to do is think about, okay, work is important, but how do I work well? How do I serve Jesus well? And actually, there, I, would, I would hazard a guess that most people in this room want to know how to serve Jesus well. Because you love him. And you want to know how to serve Jesus well. Because the reality is, if you just read this, this is the only story you read about Mary, you would be forgiven for thinking she's a lazy hallion and just a freeloading disciple who doesn't want to do nothing. You know the people who don't sign up for no teams in church? You're just like, that's Mary. Like, she's not sign up for no teams. So like... <laughs> Because she, she's listening to Lectio 365, so she doesn't have any time. So I actually love Lectio 365, and I also can't get through it at night when I fall asleep. It's been brilliant for my sleep life. Um, you, you would be forgiven for thinking Mary's like, she's just like not into serving, but that's just not true. If you read the full story of Mary throughout the Gospels, Mary is not a freeloader. She is really, really happy to serve Jesus at great cost, both financially and to her reputation for the sake of the Jesus that she loves. She is, she is going to go to work and it's going to be essential and it's going to matter. But this moment is pivotal to that. So let's read the moment where Mary goes to work in John chapter 12. And this is what it says of her. John chapter 12, verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus lived. That's Mary's, Martha's brother, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. And here dinner was given in Jesus' honor. And Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume, and she poured it on Jesus' feet. And she wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. 
But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected, why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He didn't say it because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and as keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You'll always have the poor among you, but you'll not always have me. And I read that passage, and this is the echoing question in my heart, and perhaps yours too. How come in a room full of people following Jesus is Mary the only one who knows what Jesus wants or needs in that moment? Because in this passage it says Judas grumbled, but actually in Matthew's account of the same story, all the disciples are grumbling about this. They all think Mary got it wrong. We're not talking about people who are disinterested in Jesus. We're talking about a group of people who are, who are following him. And yet they still seem not to know what Jesus wants them to do or what Jesus needs. How does Mary know what the others have missed? What Jesus? Don't you want to know what Jesus wants and what Jesus needs from us? Don't you want to know? How does Mary know when everybody else miss it? Well, I think it's connected to our passage in Luke. Because in our passage in Luke, this is what it says of Mary. She sat at Jesus' feet and she listened. She listened. She got to know him. She became his friend. And I want to propose to you that if the church in this island... And the church in the West is to serve Jesus well. We must first become friends of Jesus again. If we want to strengthen our service, we've got to first strengthen our friendship. And I think that that's what's happening in the life of Mary. But if you think about those two things for a moment, it feels like there's a bit of tension in those terms. Certainly to the original readers reading these accounts and to the original people watching the story unfold, there would have been tension between those two ideas. Because how? How can you be a servant and a friend at the same time? Because in this society, it's so socially stratified in the society of the day that you could be a servant or you could be a friend, but you could not be both. If you were a friend of the master, you operated in a certain way. You did certain things. You interacted with the master in a certain way that a servant never would. If you were a servant, you interacted with the master in a certain way that a friend never would. They're so, so different. So how is it possible that you can be a servant and a friend at the same time? You see, I think that Jesus is very good at blowing up our boxes. It's literally like he's running around trying to find boxes we put him in, and then he's like, boom, there goes another one. He loves to blow up a box. And I think Jesus is trying to teach us this. I think he's trying to teach us that actually, rather than servant and friend being two polar opposites, they're meant to work like this. But actually, being a servant and being a friend, neither one of them will we fulfill well if the two aren't integrated in our lives. And I want to propose to you that the Gospel of John has an undercurrent of this theme all the way through it. That from the very opening passages, John is interested in this concept of friendship with this Jesus. 
What does it look like to be a servant but also a friend of this Jesus? Let me show you how. Whenever you open the very first pages of the Gospel of John, other than the Word made flesh who came and dwelt among us, Jesus himself, the next character that you will meet is John the Baptist. That's different to John who writes the Gospel. John the Baptist is the next person that you meet. And as you meet him, he, he is so clear on who Jesus is. He seems to be the one who's got like the inside scoop on this, you know, probably leaping in your mother's womb when he came into the room. Was it like, it was a, he got a bit of a head start. So he knows who Jesus is. And this is what he says about this man, Jesus. In John chapter one, verse 27, he says, he, Jesus, is the one who comes after me, the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. John understands the difference between him and Jesus. He's like, I can't, if you're, I can't even, I am not, like you've got to understand that this Jesus, I am not even worthy to touch his shoe. Like not even his shoe. Like he is here and I am here, I get it. I am not worthy and I want you to catch that phrase not worthy because that's going to be so important to our study this morning. I'm not worthy to even touch his shoe. John understands that he is a servant of this Jesus. That just like the disciples will oftentimes prepare the way for Jesus, they'll go ahead and get a room ready. They'll go and get a donkey for him to travel on. As at, they'll, they'll, they'll do all the things to prepare the way. John the Baptist understands he's just like that. I've come to prepare the way for him. He's the master, I'm the servant. That's servant attitude when you come to prepare the way for the one that's coming. That's a servant kind of function. So he gets that. So this man says in one breath, I am not even worthy to touch this man's shoe. And in the next breath, in John chapter three, he says this. John chapter three, verse 28. You yourselves can testify that I said, this is John the Baptist speaking, I'm not the Messiah, but I'm sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice, that joy is mine and it's now complete. The same man who says, I am not worthy to even touch his shoe in the next breath says, I'm his friend. I'm his friend. <laughs> it's like, how are these two things possible at the same time? But somehow John gets it. And I think there's a case building for this all the way through John. You see, if you and I are comfortable with the idea of serving Jesus, okay, we've got that box ticked, then we'll be okay maybe with Mary, even though John says, I'm not willing, I'm not even able to touch a shoe, like Mary wiping his feet with her hair is probably like it's going to the next level here. But we'll probably be okay with it because still that's kind of a servant master posture, isn't it? Like in effect, when Mary does that act of devotion in John 12, yes, she's anointing him for his burial, like Jesus himself says that, but it's also a kind of foot washing. It's just that he's too good for water. His feet are too good for water. And so the oil that she hasn't in her whole lifetime even found someone who, who she is willing to put it on their head, the most honorable part of them, like Jesus, the least honorable part, the part that touches the dirt and the dust, that part's worthy of her best oil. It's like she's washing his feet, but water's not enough. And when we, when we read that passage, like with the, the idea of servanthood, we're okay with it because she's taking this posture of servant where she nails and she gets down and she washes his feet and he's master and she's servant and that's sweet. But that's gonna get you in a whole lot of trouble in the next chapter. 
Because you know the thing that makes friendship friendship? Reciprocity. Friendship is reciprocal. It's give and take. Take and give. If you've got friends and all they do is take, that is not friendship. If you've got friends and all they do is give to you, that is not friendship. What makes friendship friendship is mutuality. It's give and take. Take and give. And what we're about to see is going to blow our boxes up. Because Mary kneels in chapter 12 and washes Jesus' feet with her oil. And then chapter 13 opens. So remember, he was the master. She was the servant. One of his followers washes his feet. Chapter 13, it says this. It was just before the Passover festival and Jesus knew that his hour had come for him to leave the world and go to the Father. And having loved his own who were in the world, he loved him to the end. The evening meal was in progress and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, that he'd come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal. He took off his outer clothing. He wrapped a towel around his waist. And after that, he poured water into a basin and he began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that was wrapped around him. And he came to Simon Peter. He said to him, Lord, you're going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you don't understand what I'm doing now, but later you'll understand. No, said Peter, you'll not wash my feet. I am not worthy. I'm not worthy. Because this is an act of friendship. This is now reciprocal. The followers washed his feet in chapter 12, but now he's washing his followers. This is going to a whole new level. This is reciprocal friendship. And something in, in Peter says, no, but I'm not worthy of friendship. Service, I can handle, but friendship, no, no. No, no, I'm not worthy. But Jesus insists. And the symbolism in this moment is so rich. You see, in Scripture, whenever you find a line that you feel, you read the detail and you think to yourself, I don't think I really needed to know that. You know, you know when somebody tells you like a story and it takes seven days and they could have told you it in four seconds? Sometimes scripture feels like a little bit like I'm literally that person. I'm sorry in advance for all those who are about to become my friends. Um, sometimes scripture feels like that though. You're reading it and you're thinking, why did I, like, did I know that I need all of that detail? But you see whenever you find a detail and it, it seems like it's unnecessary, it's surplus to requirements, they're the places to stop and dig in with the spirit. Because you, you've got to understand, scrolls are expensive. And there's a lot of things to say about Jesus. In fact, one gospel writer says, if I had all the scrolls in the world, it wouldn't be enough to write all the things. So if they're selecting to put in a detail, the detail really, really matters to your understanding of the story. And there's a detail in this passage that I think feels excess, feels surplus to requirements. It says, so he got up from the table and he took off his outer clothing. Why do I need to know that? Surely the big deal is the fact that the feet were washed. Why did he need to know he took out his outer clothing? The Greek there is hematian. Outer clothing, hematian. Well, you see, you need to know that because throughout the scriptural narrative, remember every story you're reading in scripture, you're reading it in the context of a big story and it's all building together to tell you something. And throughout the scriptural narrative, the idea of the outer clothing or clothing in general is so deeply symbolic. The outer clothing is so deeply symbolic. Let's track back all the things that you know about clothes in scripture. Everybody's just gone to Joseph and his Technicolor dream coat and you're singing the musical in your head. We're not going there, guys, not that one. 
But I want you to think of some of the other things you know about clothes. I want you to think about Elijah. You remember this prophet who acted in real power? And Elisha's coming behind him and he so desperately wants to carry that same kind of impact into his nation. And what does Elisha need to carry the power that Elijah had? His outer clothing, his mantle, his coat. And when he picks it up, he gets the power because it's, it's symbolic of a prophet's power. And here we have Jesus and he might be wearing what looks like a really ordinary robe, but not only is he a prophet, he's not just the one bringing the word of the Lord. He is the word of the Lord made flesh and dwelling among us. He's the greatest prophet that ever lived because he's the actual word. So his clothing might seem very ordinary, but it's symbolic of his prophetic utterance, the fact that he is the word made flesh. I want you to think about, uh, let's think about in, in, in the books of Samuel. Whenever we have Saul in his kingly robes and Jonathan who's coming behind him, his son who's the rightful heir to the throne. And then there's this clever little moment where Jonathan takes off his robe and he gives it to David. Why? Because he knows I'm in line, but you're the one with the authority, so you need the robe. Because the robe's a symbol of kingly authority. And actually, later on, we'll see that David pulls, do you remember, cuts off the edge of Saul's robe because it's so symbolic that the authority of the kingdom is passing from Saul to David. And so Jesus might be walking around with what looks like a really ordinary robe, but it's the robe of the king of all kings. It's deeply symbolic of the fact that he is a king above every king. He's not just a prophet. He's not just a king. I want you to think about Leviticus, Exodus, whenever the high priest gets the ephod, the clothing that means he has the authority to act in the role of high priest. Jesus might look like he's wearing a really ordinary, average, everyday robe, but it is symbolic of the fact that he is a great high priest who stands literally between humanity and God and intercedes and still makes daily intercession for us. His robe is symbolic of everything that he is, all of his power and his authority. And that's why you'll find a little lady in Luke 8 who's been bleeding. Touch them with his robe and suddenly be made well. Why? She's touching all of his authority, all of his power. That's why in Matthew 14 you'll read that they're clamoring over each other to get to him. No, to get to his robe. And everybody who touches the robe is cured. Why? Because it's symbolic of all of his power and all of his authority. And he walks into this room with disciples who are meant to be his servant and he takes off his robe. He takes off his hematium. And he kneels and he washes their feet because you see in that moment he's not giving them his wisdom and he's not giving them his power and he's not giving them his authority. He's giving them himself in friendship. And everything within them recoils. Because I'm not worthy, but Jesus insists. He insists. And as the passage goes on, if you're already feeling uncomfortable, it's about to get a whole lot worse because reciprocity is all throughout the rest of the story. You get to John 14. And I want you to think about the fact if we're just servant master, what happens is the master gives commands, the servant goes and does them. The master asks for things, the servant does them. That has been the pattern in the story so far. And then Jesus flips the script and blows up the box and he says this in John 14, verse 14. Now you may ask me for anything in my name and I'll do it. What? You'll ask me and I'll do it? Like what we were learning about this morning, you'll ask me and I'll do it? This is the wrong way around. I'm not worthy to ask you and for you to do it. But Jesus is like, this is reciprocal. This is friendship. I ask you to do some stuff, you go do it. You ask me to do some stuff, I go do it. It's friendship. 
is going to build though because then we get into John 15 and Jesus says these incredible words and we've heard them so many times they have lost their power like so much of scripture in the ears of the western church it says this Jesus says this abide in me okay and everybody's like class of course we would abide in you because Jesus is the literal temple on earth because the temple is a place where heaven and earth meets So Jesus is literally God and human. He is the temple. That is, Jesus is the new temple. He's the place where heaven and earth meets. So the idea that we would abide in him makes a lot of sense, especially when David has prayed prayers like, oh, I'd rather be a doorkeeper in your house than to dwell in the tents of the wicked. Don't let me leave your house. I want to live in your house. And then Jesus says, okay, come abide in me. That's an answer to David's prayer. Abide in me. But then he says this, and I'll abide in you. No. Sorry, Jesus, not worthy. Because I know this temple. And everything inside us cries out, not worthy. Not worthy. But Jesus insists. And as John 15 proceeds, he says these beautiful words. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant doesn't know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. When you do what the master says, he doesn't call you servant, he calls you friend. Because you see, service and friendship is meant to be like this. It's an invitation into friendship, and that's why Jesus takes off his robe. Because he's not offering them his power and his authority and his wisdom. Knowing that the Father had given him all that, he takes off his robe and he offers himself in friendship. And that begins the descent into nakedness in the Gospel of John. Because you see, whenever Jesus nails, takes off his robe and nails, he's going to pick that robe back up and he's going to put it back on. But there's coming a moment in the story where that robe will be taken and he'll never get it back. John 19 reads like this. John 19, 23. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, that's a Greek word again, hematian, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them with the undergarment remaining. The garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. And this happened that the scripture might be fulfilled. They divided my clothes among them. They cast lots for my garment. And in the final moments of Jesus' life on earth, he's stripped naked because he's not just giving his power and his authority and his wisdom, he is giving himself. And there are uh, numerous ways to look at the crucifixion. Scholars have written really big books full of really difficult words <laughs> about what the cross is. And that's really, that's really important, actually. I don't want to diminish that at all. It's so important. So is the act of crucifixion atonement? Yes. Is it redemption? Yes. Is it ransom? Yes. Is it propitiation? Yes. Is it substitution? Yes. But please, in the middle of all of that, don't miss the thing that Jesus says it is. Don't miss the thing that Jesus says it is as he moves towards this moment in John. 
Because this is the lens that Jesus himself gives us to view this act through. He says, greater love has no one than this, than a man lays down his life for one's friends. The crucifixion is the greatest act of friendship that the humankind have ever seen. He gives himself in friendship, and that is the lens that Jesus gives us to look at the crucifixion through. It is an act of friendship. And everything within us says not but Jesus insists. And I've been really brokenhearted over a little passage in Luke 7. So we bring this to a close because there's this moment, and actually Jesus doesn't seem to be that brokenhearted, but I am. It's like, I'm just really annoyed about this, Jesus. Because there's this guy, and he's not a Jew, he's a Gentile, so he's already kind of on the outskirts of the story. But he, he has a servant, which is interesting. He's sick and needs help. And he feels so unworthy that he doesn't actually want to go and ask Jesus for help himself, even though he knows that Jesus has power to do something about it. And this is how the story unfolds. He gets some elders to go and ask on his behalf, some Jewish elders. And then this happens in, in Luke 7, verse 6. So Jesus went with them. That's the elders that he'd sent. And he was not far from the house where the centurion lived when the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself for I don't deserve to have you come under my roof. That's why I didn't even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word and my servant will be healed for I myself am a man under authority. I understand servant master. With soldiers under me, I tell this one go and he goes. I say this one come and he comes and I say to my servant do this and he does it. And Jesus is amazed with his faith and the person is healed, but I can't help but think the fact Jesus was on his way to your house. He didn't just want to give you his power. In that same passage, it says this. In Luke 7, 34, the son of man came eating and drinking and you say he's a glutton and a drunkard. He's a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Jesus was literally on his way. Because even though that centurion felt like he was unworthy, Jesus wanted more. And in a few chapters' time, we'll hear him tell this beautiful story about a boy who comes home and says, I'll just be the servant. Like, Father, I'm not worthy. I'll just, like, just, I'll be the servant, please. That's enough. And he has this speech already, and the father says, No, son. I insist. I insist you come to this table and you sit and you eat and you drink with me because this is a space reserved for you. And I genuinely, deeply believe that in this moment of our cultural history on this island, the Lord wants to drive insecurity out of his bride. Pete mentioned yesterday, he used this phrase, Pete, it was really helpful. He said, he said about the ghost of religion. And the problem with religion on this island is that many of us came to faith because we were really, really scared of going to hell. And the problem with that is how that plays into the rest of our journey with Jesus. Because how can you love someone you're scared of? You're always going to be tempted of around him. And when things go wrong in life, you're always going to be asking yourself the question, oh, what have I done wrong? Because Jesus is obviously really annoyed with me and that's why life's so hard. 
And I, I literally feel like the deep desire of Jesus to have you understand how beloved you are. Like how much he adores you. Like how much your company means to him. Like how deeply, even though you feel unworthy, how deeply he does not want that unworthiness to get in the way of this friendship. It can't get in the way of the friendship. It's got to propel us into his arms, covered with the pig dung. Because Jesus insists. He insists. Here's the thing about all of this. I could be a hundred times more lyrical and poetic than I am. I could preach with the tongues of men and angels. But you see, if you don't get a revelation for yourself by the spirit of how beloved you are, you'll hear this message a million times and it will make no difference. My prayer for you today is that you will open your heart to the possibility that Jesus wants to be your friend. And as you open your heart up, the Holy Spirit will come in and he will just click something into place for you. And you will know, but know, but know that you were loved. I had the weirdest experience, and I didn't plan to say this, but here we are, we're in now. <laughs> Back up, beep, beep, beep. Well, if you thought it was weird before with the whole school bag and summer school thing, you're about to, to go to a whole new level. <clears throat> I had the weirdest experience. I came to faith when I was three years old, okay? See, when your kids come to faith, that's not cute, that's amazing. Because Jesus is powerful enough to reveal himself to a three-year-old. I know because he did it for me in the middle of a tent crusade. And my parents did not know what to do with me because I wanted to go to the front. And they're like, she just wants a wee walk. So I started to shout in the middle of the tent, Jesus, come into my heart too. Why? Because Jesus revealed himself to me. And I've got to be honest, I have struggled like everybody in this room probably has with confidence and with self-doubt. I have struggled with all of those things. But do you know the one thing I've never struggled to believe? Jesus adores me. I've known it from that moment. And in all of the hard times of my life, it has been the anchor that has held me. And the other day, I was sitting in my home, and I actually think, I think I woke up, I'm not very good with details, as you'll find out. I think I woke up into it. But I can't explain it to you. It was all of a sudden, for the first time in my, in my remembrance that I could ever remember, I was like, what if Jesus doesn't love me? And for, I would say, a couple of hours, I felt like it must fail to not know that Jesus loves you. And it was the hardest two hours of my life. And then it just lifted and went. And I was talking to the Lord about it. I was like, what was that? And I think the Lord wanted me to know what it feels like to not know that you're loved by him. And so if that is you, you can walk with Jesus your whole life, you see, and still not know that. If that is you, my deepest desire for you today is not that you would go home with a head full of knowledge, but that your heart somehow would awaken to your belovedness. Because I promise you that will change everything. All the symptoms in your life that you're treating are rooted in that. And so what we're going to do, actually, I don't know how to finish this. Here we go. Help me, Holy Spirit. Crowd surfing, anybody? No. <laughs> <laughs> no. 
Remember, I'm not the fun one. I'm the one who does like summer school. Pete's fun guy. I'm summer school girl. Um, I felt specifically we're gonna the band maybe want to come and get ready. That'll help me out here. Play some Holy Spirit keys or something. Um, I felt specifically a couple of things. Okay, let's see what comes back to mind. I felt specifically that there are some men in this room and I want to talk to the beautiful men in this room. And I felt specifically that there are some men in this room and you never could quite measure up to your father's expectations. And you spent your whole life trying to, and actually for some of you, your father's dead and you're still trying to measure up to a dead man's expectations. And it has left like a wound in your spirit that makes it really difficult to connect God the way that you need to in order for you to function fully in the kingdom. And I feel for some men right now, that's resonating inside of you. The heart's palpitating a wee bit. Okay. I feel like the Holy Spirit wants to heal that for you today. That today could be the day for the first time that you understand what it's like to be a beloved son. Like, like really, really sure that you're loved and liked also and trusted all the things. I feel like the Lord wants to do that. I also think the Lord wants to do something around loneliness. I think that some of you are really, really lonely and you're not meant to be. And he wants to be your friend, but I actually think the Lord wants to give you like friends with skin on. That came out weird, I'm sorry. <laughs> Wowzers, Charlotte. Okay, let's pull this back. Whenever I started Queen's University, my, my first degree was in, my first degree, my only degree, was in psychology. This me sound so smart. Uh, my only undergraduate degree was in psychology and I rocked up to Belfast and literally guys I'd never been out of Portadown hardly in my life I, I didn't know how to use a train my sister had to show me how to use the funny windows and put your hand out and open the door and all to get to Belfast to go to Queen's and I was in this classroom there's like 150 people in this class and I was like Lord I don't know how to make friends I haven't had to make friends ever since I was like three and I was really really lonely so I just asked the Lord for a friend I said, Lord, I could do with a friend in this class, and it would be class if they loved you. Like, that would be the icing on the cake. I'd really love a friend who loves you. And one day, my lecture ran over, and it's pouring with rain, and I was running to the train in really, like, oversized flares. I don't know what I was thinking. I actually haven't changed much, to be honest. <laughs> Just slightly shorter. Uh, oversized flares, and they were sopping wet. And I, I made it into the Botanic Station just as the train chugged out. This is the worst day of my life. I was so cross. Then I heard this voice behind me. Hi, I think you're in my class. And I looked around. I'd never seen the girl before in my life. I was like, oh, right. And she says, yeah, you're doing psychology. I said, I am. She said, you missed a train? I said, I did. She said, Dunkin' Donuts? I said, you're my kind of girl. Yes. <laughs> we went to Dunkin' Donuts. And she was on my class, and she loved Jesus. And the Lord just supernaturally delivered her to me in a really wet botanic station. And we're still friends. Because the thing is, you can ask the Lord when you're lonely for a good friend, like a really good friend. And I think the Lord wants to give you really good friends because that will enable you to do some things you can't do by yourself. You need good friends. Yeah, absolutely. You 100% need good friends. You need them. This is not an optional extra. You need them. And I think the Lord wants to give some people, wants to heal some loneliness 
and to give some of you some friends. Sounds really sad, but you know what I mean. Right, listen, that's what we're going to do. I'm going to invite you to stand with me. Let's stand together. I'm going to ask the prayer ministry team who are here to come and get themselves ready. And if either of those two things feel like you feel like the Lord's saying something to you about them, I want you to be brave and come forward for prayer. But also, if you just need a revelation, maybe a fresh one or the first time ever, a revelation of how beloved you are, I really believe the Lord wants to give you that today. So if that's you, I also want you to come forward for prayer. So don't want you to wait. Start to come forward if that's what you need and that's what you want. And the rest of us, we're just going to close our eyes for a moment as people begin to make their way. And we're going to pray. I want you to hold out your hands. We're going to pray over the room as well. so loved you're so loved if you're comfortable just hold out your hands in front of you not as if you're ready to receive something from him like you're ready to receive him as your friend walking towards you now Holy Spirit, we just ask you in the middle of a really, really uh, ordinary room on an ordinary street on an ordinary day that you would do something extraordinary. Pray, Father, that you would come. Spirit, would you reveal Jesus in this room? Would you show the belovedness of the sons and daughters that are gathered in this space? I pray those who maybe think they know what it is to be loved, but actually there's another layer of love for you to go to. I pray, Father, you would take them to that deep place of love today. I pray that you would remove insecurity from your bride in the name of Jesus. We pray that fear would no longer have a place in the relationship between bride and bridegroom, Lord, that you would take that away completely. I pray for confidence to be restored to your church, confidence in the love of the Father, Son, and Spirit, confidence in your friendship, confidence in your desire to be good for them, confidence in the fact that you never ever turn them away, that you want to be with them now and forevermore. I pray for confidence to rise up in your spirit confidence rise up you're a son and daughter of the most high God you you didn't choose him he chose you like you are you are beloved you're wanted you're not an orphan you're not an orphan I pray father that the bride's head would be lifted the shoulders would go back that you would enable us to walk into all of the authority that you have called us to.